We are talking about a theology of trouble. That's our sermon series, recognizing that there are all kinds of trouble that visit our lives. There's no getting around it. Some of the trouble that comes to us is petty. It's brought on by our own diseases of spirit, such as the situation that Brittany just read where the apostles are arguing among themselves who's going to have the most Instagram followers on the new earth. Who's going to be the most highly acclaimed? Who's going to have the most fantastic life? Who's going to matter the most? They're arguing about this. Undoubtedly, people are feeling inner strain because of their own ambition and their own envy and their own jealousy. There's pettiness that afflicts us that's due to our own maladies of spirit. I've been reading a book called A Man Called Ove. It's hilarious and tragic, and it's a a curmudgeonly Swedish man dealing with a sorrow who seems to be better at everything than everyone, and he hates the modern world. He has a friend in his neighborhood association, well, that was once his friend, because he used to drive a Volvo, which any perfectly sensible Swedish person would do. But one day, this Volvo driving man went and bought himself a BMW, and how on earth can you ever have a relationship with someone who would do something like that? He's ended the friendship, because how can you deal with somebody who would sell a Volvo to buy a BMW? And go work in IT and wear a shirt that's too small and not know how to fix anything. Ove is filled with these petty grievances of soul that make his life miserable and they make ours miserable too. So we have trouble that comes from the inside because we see people who we suspect are having a life that's better than ours or who aren't considering us. At least there's no sort of universal way to know what everybody else is doing while we're not doing it on the interwebs. There is a way to find out what people are doing and that you're not a part of it on the interwebs. But we have this pettiness inside us that makes for our own trouble. We also live on a planet where, as scientists would tell us, in accordance with our own doctrine of the fall... J.D. shared this with me the other day, J.D. Bell, that the most important law in the scientific world is the second law of thermodynamics, the doctrine of entropy, that things bust up. They break down. All you've got to do if you build a new house to watch it get dilapidated is nothing. All you've got to do for your body, it's so fun. Those of you who have progress through some years in your life. You were 20. You did stupid things. You jumped over things. You landed on your shoulder. You didn't care. You're older now and you have seen things transpire and you have uncovered new ailments, new diseases, new possibilities of wrongnesses in your body that you didn't even know existed. There's like an endless array of creative malady that can happen to you. It's so exciting about growing older. 
You wake up and like, what's going to hurt today? What new disease might I get? What aggravating condition might visit me? This affects relationships. It affects your body. It affects your work. It affects your car. It affects everything that we're a part of. That's the world in which we live. This is the world in which Jesus came to start to work that dynamic backwards. There's this petty trouble that comes because of our own selves. There's this petty trouble that comes because of the environs that we're in. And then there's trouble that comes because we're in the middle of a great war. And that's the part that's hard for us to imagine, I think. That's the part that seems a little outlandish to modern people. This idea that you and I are on a battlefield when, as we go to dinner parties and as we go to a sales call and as we drive down the mountain to school in the morning. We're in a battlefield where there is an enemy. There is a nemesis. Unlike Narcissus, his name is not nemesis, but it's Satan. An, act, an adversary who is interested in derailing us, who is interested with all his might to use all the evidence around us to turn us away from God. To make our world shrink. To turn us in on ourselves. To make us shrivel into a non-human. You see this. You've seen people who age and sour rather than sweeten. Because they twist on themselves. Our first parents in the garden met with this adversary. Who merely had to raise the specter of the question. Did God really say you shouldn't have that? Ah, He didn't mean that you weren't actually supposed to not have it. He's just worried. He's holding back on you. He doesn't know what's best for you. In fact, he's just working out what's best for him. He just raised a cynical suspicion. And all he has to do for us now is do the same. And one of the best ways he can do that is bringing sickness, bringing travail, bringing aggravating, annoying, grind-your-teeth, cuss-worthy trouble into your life so that you will start to say, God's really a tyrant, isn't he? God must hate me. There's no God. C.S. Lewis said it's not in the wake of the death of his wife, whose absence, he said, is like the sky, affecting everything in his life. And he said, the danger is not for me that I'm going to stop believing in God altogether. The danger for me is that I'm going to start believing such terrible things about him. Oh, this is the kind of God he is. He's going to give me this momentary happiness, prop me up only to pull the rug out from underneath my feet. He's going to make things seem like they're going really swimmingly for a moment, only to drown me. He's a tyrant, isn't he? He's cruel. He's indifferent to my distress. Your accuser knows that this is the reality that everybody faces. And the thing is, we also have a stronger adversary to him who is our advocate. Or who will be the advocate of anyone in here who will release and surrender themselves to him. And he's stronger 
than Satan. And he can overpower anything that Satan does and convert it to good. And we see this right here in this little episode after the disciples have had the Last Supper with Jesus. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, hey, guys, we don't operate according to the world. Your call is to be a servant to all. I stand among you as one who serves, and you have stood by me in my trials. That's going to come up in a minute. That notion, anyway. And I confer on you a kingdom. I'm giving you the new earth. I'm giving you an inheritance, which Peter will later say cannot spoil, perish, or fade. You have the earth to inherit. You're going to rule over the tribes of Israel. You don't have to fight over these things. And then he looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for y'all, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed for all of you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus recognizes something here. That the thing he's concerned about most for Peter is not how well he does in retirement. Or not whether he gets his body mass index in the right condition or whether he has any heart disease later. He's not seemingly concerned about whether he eventually gets crucified upside down because that will happen. So tradition tells us. What he is concerned about is that his faith would fail. Isn't that interesting? I had a seminary professor who would tell us that when you enter into church planting, when you enter into the pastor, you need to be avid and going after R&D. Now, those of you in the business world know R&D stands for research and development. But he, and particularly corny, churchy ways, said, in our case, R&D means rob and duplicate. Steal things from others that are good and use them. That's a good, that's a good little policy. And Ed Clowney has said, since Pentecost, there's no, and there's no original idea. Everything's plagiarism. The Spirit has been released. Spirit of revelation. Well, that being said, I, I'm robbing and duplicating a point today and, and an ethos from Kelly Capick, who's a professor to some of y'all, went to our seminary. The seminary that we own. No, the seminary that we, Scott and I went to, Scott Jones and I went to, and David Norman over there. We got some RTS graduates in here. And he's a professor at the college, and he gave a talk on faith and hope and love and suffering. And one of the things that stood out to me in a, in a really compelling way that's kind of smacked me around was him saying something like this. When people are in the midst of intense travail, yes, pray for their healing, but that is not the crisis, he said. The crisis is whether their faith will hold or not. I thought, huh. That's good, Kelly. And then I realized this is exactly what Jesus is saying to Simon. 
He never tells anybody. In fact, he's just had the Lord's Supper with them. And he said, hey guys, I'm about to suffer. Jesus is not going out of his way to avoid trouble in his life. I'm about to suffer. So we're going to eat this meal together. This is the last time before I suffer. I'm not going to eat it with you again until all things are new and we're in the kingdom together. Till we eat together in an actual table on this new earth where the benevolent reign of God has taken over everything and has worked itself backward into all the agony of the world and made it a delight. And then he gives them a meal and he says, here is my body which is going to be broken, given, donated, sacrificed for you. The meal that he says he wants us to remember him by is a meal that has to do with grotesque and horrendous suffering. Literal bone-crushing suffering. And then he says, oh, and then drink the cup of suffering, the cup of now blessing that I've converted because I drank the wrath of God and now I hold out to you the pleasures of God this covenant in my blood. Jesus is such a realist with us. There's going to be massive, agonizing aggravation that comes into your life. There's no avoiding it. The question is, how are you going to deal with it? And Jesus says to Peter, here's what I'm concerned about. I want your faith to stand. The Old Testament passage we read has always just moved me. God saying, if you do not stand in your faith, then you will not stand at all. There's this recognition that if you don't have this fundamental confidence in Christ, that he's for you, that no matter what happens is ultimately for your good, that no matter what happens is his to decide, that he's forming you, that he's shaping you, that he's going to make all things new, that our light Slight and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. None of these things are evident to our senses as we look around. Do you realize this? I've done some scientific research, and I would, if my calculations are correct, report to you that 78% of the circumstances in your life would compel you to believe that God hates you. Maybe 79 Okay, that's a little cynical, but if you just look around, if you just look around at what's happening in your life, especially given some section of time in your life, pick one quarter of your life, maybe it's 2016. Look at the last two weeks or look at the summer months and you think about what happened financially for you or what happened to your body or what happened with your relationships or what happened at your work and... Joyfully enough, sometimes all of those things go wrong at once. It's never just like one thing. It's a tornado of disastrous trouble that dumps into your life all at once. And so if you are looking for evidence of God's sweetness and tenderness and his slow to angerness and compassion towards you, and you're only looking at your circumstances, you are going to say, not looking too good. You know that song? We sang it last week. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
It takes faith, a confidence that behind the scenes of what is actually happening to me right now, that there's a smiling God who's up to some good that I can't understand. A good that feels so atrocious. A good that feels so indifferent of him. A good that, a good that seems so impossible because of how real the pain is. And faith is that capacity that we have to see through the frowning providence, to see through the gnarling, angry-looking circumstances of our lives to see that there's a wounded God behind them doing amazing renovation, even through trouble. So Satan in his prayer life is praying, let me have Peter. Let me put him in a blender bottle. Let me shake him up real good. Let me liquefy him. Let me put him in the Vitamix like a blueberry in a morning smoothie. And That's a modern way of saying, let me sift him like wheat. Satan praying that he might be able to shake up and disturb Peter and knock his faith off to make it evaporate like the oil in an engine so that his life locks up. And Jesus says, but Peter, someone stronger than Satan, someone better than Satan, someone more firmly for you than anyone will ever be in your life has prayed for you so that your faith won't fail. So that when you have failed in your loyalty, you'll be restored and you'll go back and you'll be able to strengthen the brothers. That is my intention for you. If you want to endure trouble well, you've got to see that you have a Savior who really does pray for you, who really does advocate to God for you, who really does overrule everything that happens to you for the benefit of your capacity to hang on to him who's hanging on to you. Martin Luther said, it is nearly impossible to endure suffering well without some peace of conscience and some belief that God is on your side. You know that? If you don't think that God loves you, you're going to misinterpret everything that happens in your life as evidence of his turning his back on you, as evidence of his hatred, as evidence of his callous disregard for you. So you've got to work at opening yourself up to, hanging out in places where your assurance of God's favor can grow. Like here. I don't know many people who fall away from worship who grow in a lively sense of the wonders of Christ. There are a few. There's like six on, on, on the planet. All the rest, things go wonky with them. The scriptures want to tell you over and over again that the way you find out whether God loves you or not is you look at Jesus Christ. You look at his life. You look at his death. You look at his resurrection. You look at what has been done that nothing can change. It's already happened. There you see God's largesse. You see his generosity. You see his self-giving and 
donating himself to make all things right and well, there you see a demonstration of his affection that says, I'm going to love you and you can't make me not. If you look at your circumstances, you will not be able to divine these things all the time. So you've got to have a sense of assurance, a sense by looking at Christ, that's what faith is, that God's for you if you're not going to be completely derailed by your suffering. You've got to see Jesus saying, I prayed for you. I'm fighting for you. You've got to see Jesus not as some little pasty, waifish dude who can't handle nothing, but as somebody who's going to knock away anything that stands in the way of your faith. And it's good that he does this because crisis, the crisis of our lives is that we are people who are called to faith. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God. We're saved by faith. It's the instrument, the empty hands by which we receive all of God's grace towards us. It's where we get our confidence. It's where we get our trust. It's believing things we can't see with our eyes. But we do all of this in a body. You realize this? Everybody touch your nose. Touch your nose. Come on, come on. You've never done that in church before, I bet. Not by command. You have a nose and you have a finger. That's all. You have hair, you have eyes, you have legs and a torso. You are an embodied creature. You have a body. You are a body. And that's what makes us so vulnerable in the issue of faith. Because you may notice that when you are feeling poorly, there is not usually an accompanying zeal for Bible reading. I don't know many people, when they are afflicted with a migraine that sends them to a dark room where they hope that the world ends right then, who are saying, Get me my Bible. And let's have some folks and let's have a prayer meeting. I have an enormous appetite for Christ right now, even though I want to vomit and hope that the world ends instantly and swallows me up because my pain is so great. No, you have almost no appetite for God in those moments. Your body is frail. And how it's doing has a lot to do with how your faith is doing. I wrote to you guys last summer after I had just had my newest discovery of the innumerable wrong things that can happen in the world. I had just been diagnosed with sarcoidosis. And I didn't even know before to be afraid of that. So I wrote, I remember writing, and I read it, like for the last 17 days, I think I was hospitalized for five. For the last 17 days, I've had flu-like symptoms all the time and chills. So that was good. And I had had a bronchoscopy because I was coughing relentlessly and they thought there, there were some nodes in my lungs or something. And I came out of this bronchoscopy and I started coughing so violently that my blood vessels in my eyes burst. And it looked like I had been in an MMA fight with Ronda Rousey. My modeling career was over. 
And I wrote to you all, as I had discovered in a previous two-month hospitalization ten years prior, that when you are filled with this kind of lethargy, it leeches spiritual interest out of you. It's really hard when you can't see or breathe and you're just so weary and you don't want to do anything to find yourself praising the Lord. It's hard. The interest drains out of you. People in the addiction world recognize this. That's why they tell you not to get too hungry or angry or tired or lonely. Because they know that you're susceptible to all kinds of vulnerabilities to to put yourself under the mastery of something bad when weakness comes on you because your body affects so much of you. I had a friend recently underwent a procedure. And afterwards was told for days he had to just lie there. And he told me later, oh, I'm so disappointed because I thought in all this time of just having to sit there and not being able to work, this forced time, my relationship with Christ would grow, that my prayer life would increase because I would have nothing else I could do, but I would just pray. And I said, oh, I didn't think that would happen. I didn't think that would happen at all. I think there might be some kind of deepening that might happen. But I would imagine that, the, that there would be no interest in praying when you were recovering from a surgery like that. I mean, in my experience, y'all are holier than I am. But I think the point here, Walker Percy made it too. Will Barrett in a cave trying to prove the existence of God in the second coming and suddenly is afflicted in this time of solitude with a toothache. Like an ice pick being driven into his upper canines. And he becomes nauseated. And he says, if anything will end man's search for God, it's nausea. A nauseated man is a disinterested man. There are just things about your physical person, whether that's depression, whether it's a throbbing ankle because you just tore ligaments, whether it's a headache or intense hunger or stress or sleeplessness that affect you badly. And that's why you get most frail in those moments, and that's when your faith can fail. And so the prescription is listening to Jesus say to Peter, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says to his apostles, you're the ones who have stood by me in my trials. The prescription for us in the weakness of our body and our inability to keep our faith sustained when we are in trouble is trouble sharing. We're in an economy right now, the sharing economy, collaborative consumption, Airbnb and ride sharing, Uber, yes, and all manner of other things I don't know anything about. This recognition that, hey, we don't all have to own the same thing. We can take these assets and we have the technology now that will permit us to seamlessly and easily share them to make a service out of our assets. Well, the Bible was urging people to do this way before Al Gore invented the Internet. The Bible has always called us to share in each other's troubles. Paul says in that 
passage I love so much in 1 Corinthians after he talks about being utterly unbearably crushed. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on him who raised the dead. And he said, and on him we have set our hope that he will continue to raise us as you help us by your prayers. He says a similar thing while he's in prison in Philippians. He says, but I trust that what has happened to me will turn out for my good, that whether in life or in death, I will exalt Christ in my body by your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Christ Jesus. See, these guys were before the Enlightenment, so they didn't realize that it didn't work to pray to Christ and Him unleash His Spirit to help people who are in travail. They didn't realize it had been scientifically proven that that didn't work. Because it hasn't, you see. I'm being sarcastic, snide, snarky. Modern people don't realize this, but this is what we're called to, to share in each other's troubles. You need people believing with you and for you when you can't believe for yourself so that your faith won't fail. There are lonely people who wonder, has God left me? And you know how they're going to believe that he hasn't? Because somebody's going to go by their house later. He's going to sit there with them. He's going to hold their hand. He's going to bring them a dang casserole. A casserole made of rice and the love of God. And chicken. Please, no quiche. That would be sifting like wheat. (laughs) Kale is what I meant. I said quiche, didn't I? I was thinking kale. I was trying to go with my perpetual kale joke, and I said quiche. Sorry. Man, I wish I could rewind that, but I can't. There is this very lively sense in the scriptures that the way you're going to get helped when your faith is flagging, when it's very weak, is that God's people are going to be visiting you, caring for you, encouraging you, believing for you. And that's what's going to help your faith not fail. They're going to pray to the Christ who's praying for you. And he's going to unleash his spirit so that you're Knees won't buckle and your shoulders won't droop and your head won't stay downcast. Paul says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted me by the sending of Titus. Not an ethereal sense of his ephemeral love. He sent a dude who would sit with me, who would talk to me, and I interpreted by faith God was caring for me. Who around us needs that? The people who have been suffering longest are the people who need it most because you know why? Because we get worn out with their suffering. You think they don't too? People stay away from suffering people if they don't suffer the correct amount of time. You have in your head a correct amount of time that someone should grieve or should be hurting or should be sick. If that goes on and on and on in your mind you make these little notes oops 
They've extended their welcome. They've extended the time of compassion for them. Who is that? And maybe you're that, and you need to reach out to some people. Will you pray for me? It'll make you feel embarrassed. And, of course, anytime you ask somebody to pray for you, they hate you instantly. I can't tell you how many people I hate because they said, will you pray for me? They say, hey, will you pray for me? I'm really struggling. I'm like, man, you shouldn't have taken that risk. That was a terrible risk. Now I think so poorly of you. You're awful. So this is up is down and down is up. Do you see what I'm doing here? That's what you are afraid of. You're afraid when you ask people to pray for you that they're going to think something wrong and you think they're bo- you're going to bother them. And in my experience, when people ask me to pray for them, I'm just glad. And I've just told you, I'm not that holy. I, get, I lose my spiritual interest whenever I get a headache. We need each other to trouble share. If you're going to handle your trouble well, you're going to have to work at, give yourself to cultivating a faith that clings to Christ no matter what's happening to you, that believes that he's for you no matter what's happening to you. You have to realize that the most important thing you have, Peter later says, though you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith, which is of more value than gold, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ on the day he is revealed. See, Peter, who learned this by the Savior, who prayed against the evil one who was trying to put him in the Vitamix, the blender bottle, Peter learned that the most impressive asset he had in his life was not his 401k and not his health. It was not the relationships around him. It was his faith. And by that, he had all things, including an inheritance that would not perish, spoil, or fade. And he had a way to endure because it latched him to the Savior who's with him in his troubles. And those troubles we're called to share with each other. This illustration hopefully will close this up well. You've probably heard it before. I love it. An angel that troubled the waters. Thornton Wilder's story, there's this based on John chapter 5, Bethsaida, Bethesda, the pool, where the angel would come and shake up the waters, and when you got into the waters, you'd be healed. If you were crippled or blind or deaf or had a skin disease. And so one day, the angel troubles the waters in this play, and a physician, who's his whole life struggled with the darkness in his soul, with, with dark thoughts, with a sort of melancholy spirit, He starts to jump in. It's his time. He starts to get in the waters, and the angel says, draw back, physician. This moment is not for you. And the physician says, oh, but angelic visitor, I pray thee, listen to my prayer. And the angel, like the soup Nazi on Seinfeld, says, healing, not for you. Probably not in that voice. And the physician says, but surely, surely you angels are wise. Surely you're not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the nets in which my wings have been caught. The sin in which all my endeavors sink, half performed. Those cannot be concealed from you. And the angel says, I know. I know the darkness in your soul. I know the frailty that you feel. I know 
this weakness. And the physician protests again, and the angel says, Physician, without your wound, where would your power be? It's your very sadness that makes your low voice tremble in the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth, as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. There's this recognition that our God who stepped into our world with wounds and and an apparent defeat where people watched him on a cross and said, if God were really with him, he wouldn't be getting crucified because there's a rule. If God's with you, you have shiny teeth, perfect abs, and nothing bad happens to you. You don't die humiliated and naked with everybody making fun of you. The circumstances say he's rejected. But here we are today because the circumstances weren't all that there were. Because faith sees through that frowning providence to see a smiling face that God was grinding his own son down on the wheels of living so that he could broker as a wounded soldier. The love of God to wounded people. And now you're called to trouble share. To fill up in your body the afflictions of Christ. They're going to flow over into your life, but so is his comfort. But safeguard your faith. Give attention to your faith. And not only to yours, but to the faith of the person sitting next to you. And the faith of the person who's not here this morning because they couldn't get out of bed, or because they feel wounded themselves. And love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Let's believe it. Let's trouble share with great faith on that.